we're back. It's one o'clock and we're going to be talking over the next half an hour about data omics, predicting risk and progression. And I'm joined by um, three brilliant researchers. Why don't you introduce yourselves? Petra, why don't you go first? Okay, I'll go first. Hi, everybody. Uh, Adam, thank you for having us. Um, and for me, it's the second time. So it's it's really nice to be back. Um, so my name is Petra Proitzi and I'm um, Alzheimer's Research UK Senior uh, Fellow. And I'm based at the uh, Department of Basic and Clinical Neuroscience at the IOPPN at King's. So very long. Thank you. Christina. Yes, hi. For me, it's the first time in the chapter. I'm a bit nervous. <laughs> and I just uh, introduce myself. So, my name is uh, Christina Regidoquiri, and I am the head of systems medicine in a hospital in uh, Denmark and also in uh, the Institute of Pharmaceutical Science at the King's College London. Thank you. Um, um, Maram, am I saying that uh, right? Yes, yes, that's right. Um, to be honest, I used to be a teacher, so I answer to anything now. Uh, <laughs> uh, my name is Mariam Shoy. I'm a senior research fellow with John Hardy's group at UK DRI, that's Dementia Research Institute. Um, and I've been here for the past 10 or 12 years, I would say. Um, yeah, I work with genetic data, and I'd love to discuss that with you soon. Well, in that case, but I stick with you um, because I, I, a lot of our guests uh, will have our watchers at home will have heard of John Hardy this week because of course he was on the news yesterday. He's been doing the rounds. Uh, why don't you tell us about your work? Right. Uh, well, it's appropriate that I'm working from his office today. Then in that case, um, I've taken over his office. today. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've been working with John in various roles for the past 10 years or so. Uh, most recently in the past six to seven years, I've been concentrating on using statistics and genomic data to come up with ways of predicting uh, whether someone is likely to get Alzheimer's disease or not when they are older. And um, this is something that I know you focused a lot on your uh, in your chat already, using different ways of predicting whether someone is on the way to getting Alzheimer's disease or not. But I guess... Um, the major difference is that we, you know, your genetics don't essentially change for most part throughout your life. You do have some rare uh, cases, some cases where you get new mutations in your genetic, uh, in your genetic material, but mostly it stays the same. And that means pretty much as soon as you're born, in theory, we should be able to have a idea of whether you will go on to develop Alzheimer's disease or not, or any other form of genetic disorder, anything that has a genetic component. And that's essentially what I'm doing, coming up with different algorithms, different predictive models to uh, that include genetics as well as other clinical factors to see what are the possible what are the possibilities we can come up with in predicting whether someone will have Alzheimer's disease or not. Yeah, fascinating. Um, I'm going to come to Petra next because I think this is all going to come together nicely for my questions. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, I, I am. So I've been working on something uh, quite similar, I suppose. Uh, uh, so I use genetic data a lot, and I, we use also. Um, I collaborate actually with Christina, so this is going to bind all very nicely, Adam. Uh, in the end, uh, we use also other types of. Um, data, uh, biological data, such as metabolomics or lipidomics, so different types of uh, biological modalities. And we try to um, use all these together, so the genetic data, the other types of biological data, and clinical or lifestyle data to 
improve prediction, risk prediction, who's going to get Alzheimer's disease, can we predict it early? And also we are interested in identifying um, whether any of these molecules are um, the cause or the consequences of Alzheimer's disease. So are they contributing to the risk or are they a result? Um, of, of Alzheimer's disease. And we do this using big genetic data and big biochemical data and big data sets with other uh, information available. And does that work both ways as well, in so much as you can also look at those kind of, what do they call them, super agers, and people to see why some, not only why people do, but why people don't. Is that part of that as well? Yes, yes, yes. And as Mariam says, you, 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 when you, you're born, you've got, when you're born, your genetics don't really change. So, so this is something, having this information later in life is actually helping us to see what are the differences uh, in those people that they have um, achieved such a, um, you know, successful aging so far. Fascinating. Um, Christina. Sorry, I caught you um, on mute, didn't I? <laughs> yes. So... So how how I contribute to this um, omics uh, research is that I have uh, two scientific hats. So I studied chemistry a long time ago, and then more recently data science. So the chemistry side is producing this omics data, and to do so we have uh, machines, and these machines are called mass spectrometers. And they're very uh, powerful and com uh, complex uh, machines. And um, so what, what we do with these machines is that we can get a bit of a, a biofluid, like very small amount of plasma or blood or CSF. And also we can analyze for biopsies, let's say like a, a small biopsy of a brain that was donated to, to a biobank. And then by using this technique, what we, we can detect is thousands of molecules. So these molecules could be uh, fatty molecules, like uh, there are many known, uh, up to 40,000 different uh, fatty molecules, which I think people don't, don't know that. And also let's say proteins, which uh, again, there are in the thousands. And, and then what we try to do by, by having all of this information is uh, using data science to see how these molecules interact within themselves in the disease. And then through this, we find biology and, uh, and uh, opportunities to, to see uh, how drugs can, can play with, uh, with this biology. So is it, we've just in the last session we heard from um mark and rich who were talking you know they they very much in the lab kind of interacting with these things so yours is off to the side of that or is this does your research come first do you help them kind of find the the right people and targets in the first place so maybe maybe let's ask that question first about about i introduced the session as omics is omics just genetics then what is omics for the people watching who don't know what omics is um maria maria why don't you go why don't you take that one yeah um okay so i'm going to put my teacher hat on and i remember back in the day when i was a teacher at gcsc level you would hear about um D you, you would know in gcse biology that you had dna that transcribed to um to rna and that went on to produce pro proteins 
every single one of these layers has its own omic. So if you have DNA, you're dealing with genetic data and they call it genomics. If you're dealing with RNA, you're dealing with transcription data, you're calling, you're calling that transcriptomics. And then if you go further into protein, you've got proteomics. So basically omics is just a lazy way of saying, let's study all of that together or parts of that together or parts of that separately. That's the teacher way of explaining it. No, I think that's that will have helped a lot of people watching, I think, because mm -hmm. we, we do hear that term. So does this omics, I mean, how how reliable are you in, or how confident are you that we're going to be able to to really understand somebody's risk? I mean, what are we talk I mean, from the information you have? Petra. Yeah, I'm putting you on the spot. You might all leave your mics off mute. <laughs> yeah, 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 you're right. Sorry, it's um, I'm so used to sort of like uh, no, 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 I agree. And I'm just, meeting. I'm just, I just want to bring everybody into the chat. That's all. Uh, so, how, how confident are you? I mean, that you know, that this is so, I mean, I'm putting myself in this, in you know, I'm, I'm just a person too. I, I mean, we always hear from some people who don't want to know, some people who do want to know from their genetics as to what their risks are. I guess a lot of this depends on whether there's treatments. And if we know who's most at risk, then we have something we can do for those people. That's got to be a good reason to know this, this right. So how close are we to, how close in your research are we to, to being able to predict well, yeah, that, that that's a that's a sort of a different angle. This question, uh, um, I think I think we are no no no. Um, uh, and please, the other ones can also uh, jump in if I, I've missed something. But um, I think we are getting close in in predicting some things. Uh, for example, um, knowing the genetics of Alzheimer's disease, for example, we can we now have. Uh, genetic scores where we can predict uh, with uh, good accuracy if someone is got higher chances of developing dementia or not. Um, uh, so these these are quite accurate. Um, we are in my sort of like work. I'm trying to use um, information based on other biological layers, as I said. Or for example, you're using lipids and try to see if you have higher um, uh, scores, sort of in, um, higher genetic levels associated with these lipids are you more likely to get dementia so we are on that level we are not there yet but i think we are getting to a point where we can pretty much start predicting if somebody is going to get dementia now how how is this going to use i think we're still in the research phase it's so a whole separate conversation isn't it about use separate, of yeah. that <laughs> in, in fact i was uh, i had a debate with students debating whether they would want to know the risk of having alzheimer's disease um in the current climate in the situation and it's it's quite a big debate i think uh, but i think research wise um we we are getting there we can um um we are closer to predicting um disease onsets um if somebody disease risk and i think we can understand more a bit more about progression i don't know if the others uh have anything to add yeah have you got anything to add to that um Mariam? um i would just say that i mean there are studies that have looked at just genetics which is actually a small section of the disease but genetics by itself was able to predict whether someone will go on to get alzheimer's disease uh, in about 85% of the cases. So we are actually, you know, quite, uh, quite close to having a very good clinical uh, predictive models 
using genetics data alone. But then, as you say, that leads on to the question, do I want to know that right now anyway? Um, what do we do with that information? And yeah. th this session is talking about um, progression. So, so this same this same information you're looking at can not only tell the likelihood of getting it, but then what will happen to you after you you get that? Is there anybody? I don't know if is that something you look at, Christine. It sounds like you're closer. You're on that. So, are you referring to to conversion or? Well, uh, well, maybe it's maybe it's more one for for Mariam uh, about disease progression so you know we know that everybody experiences symptoms differently that's that, that, you know we talked to chris this morning that has mixed dementia who's who has changed some of his lifestyles but has been living with the disease for a number of years now whereas we also hear from people who very rapidly progress is the information the research you're doing able to help with that well that's certainly the hope that's what we are aiming for uh, we know that, uh, that dementia progresses everyone experiences it differently so there are people who um, are diagnosed and within five to seven years they've completed their course and the disease is over but some people go on living with dementia for 20 years and for the first five to seven years are actually relatively you know fine they you know we we heard this morning about Barbara Windsor's experience who was actually able to hide the symptoms for quite a long time it seems which means that she wasn't progressing that rapidly from the beginning so what dictates whether someone goes very quickly or very slowly um, must be genetics as well as environmental. So environmental is a little bit more difficult to understand because there are so many different factors contributing to it. But at the very least, we could try to identify what are the genetic risk factors that, um, that um, help push someone towards a faster progression as opposed to a slower progression. And we've done that with other disorders. We've done that with Parkinson's disease. We've done that with progressive therapy and alcohol policy. It's just been released that there's some there, there's a study that's looked at uh, multiple sclerosis where they've actually identified genetic factors that push you towards faster progression. And in two of those, the first two disorders that I've mentioned, that's actually led to pharmaceutical companies looking at targets, molecules that they could actually aim for to reduce the speed with which people progress, those who do progress. And that, that's, I think, what you're looking at, Chrissy, isn't it, is replenishing those molecules. Yes, because so. we we uh, combine genetics with downstream products of the genetics. So since we are also looking at the, at the proteins and, the, and lipids, uh, then we can, we can start looking at the ways of modifying uh, the disease. So... Um, talking about the metabolic risks that uh, might affect also uh, progression to, to dementia. As, as we know, like uh, uh, diabetes is a risk for dementia as well. So all of these environmental factors are going to be uh, seen in the, in, the, in the phenotype, in the, in the proteins and the, and the small molecules. And I mean, how do you practically replenish a molecule? Is this taking a tablet? Is this, or is this something you can you you can do naturally through a change of lifestyle? Because we said you can't really change your genetics, but what? How can you change your the the um, the molecules that are, that are there? 
who wants so, to take that? <laughs> you can you can do Patrick, both. <laughs> you can do both. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you can do both. You can um, you can you can have uh, molecules through nutrition, obviously, like we all know about the omega fatty acids, and uh, and and how we need the for them to enter the brain and actually they enter the brain attached to bigger lipids. So these are the kind of things that uh, we discovered in, uh, in our group. And, uh, and of course, the genetics people can uh, comment <laughs> on how, how you would also need the drugs as well, right? So. Go on, Petra. Uh, you've no, I was. I agree with Christina on that. Yes, it's it's through diet, for example, but also uh, lots of proteins are drug targets as well. So by identifying a, a protein that may be associated um, with with a, a Alzheimer's disease, then you can see whether this uh, is a target uh, for a drug, and then we can start uh, intervening. So it can be used both preventative. Um, as sort of changing your diet, for example, or um, as an intervention, uh, interventional approach. So uh, at the moment, do you work on kind of big data sets or are, you, are we talking about individual people? Because I'm, you know, when we're talking about the lifestyles or potentially replenishing modules, of course, you can only do that if you're then going to have somebody to work with to go away and work with on this. Or do you work with big data sets or do you do both? Big data sets uh, of, of many, many people, yeah. What, what about you, Mary? Um, similarly, I mean, when you're dealing with genetic data, you're dealing with millions and millions of variables that you're looking at. And at the same time, because, I mean, for anyone who would do stat uh, statistic will know that you cannot look at millions and millions of different things in 20 people in 40 people it has to be closer to 40,000 people to be able to actually reliably analyze your data so big data is definitely um i guess a, a common theme here and so that's where i guess we need more people to come forward and contribute to things like the genome studies and the biobanks and the the different trials that are taking place yeah absolutely are there any that you'd particularly like to get a plug in for I'm also, we should talk about things like Dementia's Platform UK, which are uh, amazing tools funded by uh, uh, the Medical Research Council, I think is in the UK that funds that, which is this kind of collaboration of different cohorts of data from different places that puts it all in the hands of researchers, mostly for free, I think, um, to, to perform exactly. I think we're going to talk to some people later on today talking about drug repurposing, for example, that use exactly those kind of data sets. So do Kings and UCL have their own, your, have you got your own amazing data sets to do this work on? Um, Not that I'm introducing an element of competition. <laughs> <laughs> We don't share. <laughs> do. I'm sure you do share. We do. Everybody <laughs> shares. Do you have your own data sets? I mean, I mean, so that's a, that's the question. How do you get your data to do this work on? Where does it come from? Um, I can answer part of that, at least from my side. So a lot of the work that we do is heavily dependent on the data that's publicly available. Um, 
most of those are academic collaborations that have made it into the public domain. So, for example, there's something called the Alzheimer's Disease Neuro, uh, Neuroimaging Initiative, which is an amazing data set where they look at people who are healthy as well as people who are cognitively impaired and analyze different aspects of their uh, of their life as well as their brain, their genetics, etc. There are other this uh, there are uh, many many data sets. For example, the UK Biobank data, which is one of the most powerful one. In fact, if you go to a genetic conference now, you can bet that at least a third of the people will be using the UK Biobank data set to do anything. It's absolutely amazing data set, and we need more fundings for for initiatives like that to be spread across Europe and across the world. And I hope one day we can see that in other populations, not just the European population. And that, I mean, and this, I mean, this is something that many many people who are watching might be involved in this and not necessarily entirely realize because when you interact with healthcare next time you're asked to fill in a questionnaire it might say oh can we just use this little bit of information we've collected for you and contribute towards these these cohorts of data which then feed into these bigger databases that are uh, you know they're all there conspiracy theorists might not like that idea but it, it, it's there and and it's making a real difference because without you and volunteering this information um we wouldn't have the data to do the research on. Um, what have you found that surprised you so far? There's something kind of, uh, well, if this, I'm going to make this a two-part question. What have you, have you found anything that surprised you? And have you made any changes to your own lives as a result of your own research? Uh, Christina, you go first. Um, I have found a lot of uh, things that surprise me when I, when I do uh, research. Uh, Let's see, like uh, some of the things that surprised me the most because they were going a bit uh, against the paradigms. Um, when we had a look at the brains uh, from uh, people with Alzheimer's, we actually found that the molecule of, uh, of uh, cholesterol was uh, decreasing, uh, both in the brain and in the CSF. And you know, like everybody thinks uh, cholesterol is bad for you, <laughs> but in fact, the, the uh, molecule of uh, cholesterol is uh, doing a lot of uh, roles in the brain and it needs to be in the right place. So the problem is when it uh, doesn't go where it needs to go. So that was one of the results that, uh, that surprised me. And then uh, another thing was to do with um, uh, what I was hearing in one of your interviews this morning at uh, nine, I think, and it's to do with sleep. So we also found that the people with Alzheimer's um, have molecules in the in the blood that are increased and are to do with the lack of sleep. So and that was at the really early stages of uh, of Alzheimer's. So I think this is a bit related to to bit changes that I have done in my lifestyle as well, which is um, making sure that Have you I... just given us all permission to, to, it's okay to have high cholesterol? Did I, is I, did I get the wrong takeaway from that? Am I, no, is, no, 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 <laughs> this is to do with sleep. No, no, I, I, I am. I, I joke, of course. But so that's fascinating. I mean, it's great that, I mean, again, it kind of adds to that thing about collaborations and why the DRI and other organizations that work together are so great because, you know, you take what you learn about cholesterol and then find somebody else who's working on cholesterol somewhere else that is connected and it, it's brilliant. What about you, um, uh, Petra? 
Um, I've, I haven't found anything that surprised me so much. I don't. I don't. I came in with no major expectations. Or at some point, I realized I should not have major expectations from the data we're getting. What I suppose what has surprised me a bit, which now it doesn't anymore, is that using these methods we are using, we found a lot of associations. We thought between some molecules and Alzheimer's were the other way around. For example, we thought that, okay, let's say cholesterol, although it's just an example, is associated with Alzheimer's. Maybe it's it's contributing to the risk. And then we thought, actually, it's not. It's maybe because you've got Alzheimer's disease, you've got higher molecules. So this we started sort of disentangling some of these um, causal associations, and some of them were the opposite to what we expected. And that's where your data can come in again, right? Because you yeah. you take data from people at different stages in their lives. So you can look at this, you know, your 41-year-olds and then your 42s and your 43, and you can build up that bigger picture. Yes, you, you can do it with different types of data and different types of approaches. And some of, some of this data doesn't even need sort of longitudinal data, some of these approaches, but it's always nice to sort of, yes, triangulate this information, put it together. Um, but what yes... Yeah. Um... No, no, that's all right. And, and Mariam, have, have you changed your life? Have you found something that discovered you? I mean, you're working for the, the famous John Hardy. Surely you're making new discoveries literally on a daily basis. Um, well, I have to say, I, I came into this field from a background. My PhD is actually in physical chemistry. So everything was absolutely new to me and everything was surprising to me. But over the past few years, I found that um, so I've actually really enjoyed how things click together. And I was like, oh, of course it does. This really, of course, that makes absolute sense. But what really did surprise me was actually looking at progression. We realized that the genetic factors that drive risk in Alzheimer's disease are not the same ones that drive progression at all, which means that you cannot be targeting the same molecules if you want to slow down the disease. And I found that it was one of those how could I have possibly fought otherwise moments, but also at the same time, oh my God, that's really amazing type of moments. It makes complete sense, doesn't it? I mean, I can see how you jump to that conclusion that the same things that cause it are the things that affect progression, but to to disassociate those two things, I think is, you're right, when you, when you say it now afterwards, it makes complete sense, but it, it doesn't at the time. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Fascinating as ever. So I'm joined by the wonderful Christina, Petra, Mariam. You'll find details uh, on them and their work and links to their Twitters. If I think you all have Twitter, you're all Twitter users, all on the um, the guests page of the website. Thank you ever so much. Thank you so much, you. Adam. Thank Please you. Please do keep up the uh, amazing work and uh, I hope we'll get you all onto Dementia Research to do a podcast on this because it's a fascinating topic that we barely ever touched on in the podcast thank you very much have a great day thank you so much bye everyone okay so uh we've hit half past one so we're five and a half hours into our 12 and a half hour live stream only half an hour away from the halfway mark and um coming up between half past one and 2 p.m We've got a session which has been given the title Doing Clever Things with MRI, which I think is a bit of a broad title because I gave it that title probably before reading everybody's bios and realizing they do far more than just do stuff with MRI. They do all kinds of clever things with lots of stuff. Um, so 
just a reminder before we move into this next session, all of our brilliant guests are here. We've got Ricardo Manka, Jodie Watt, and Dr. Claire Lancaster. I should call you all Dr. Goes before all of those things. Um, who have come from, you're all from the UK this time around. So we're going to move on to this session now. Just a reminder to everybody that not only are we sharing information about research today, but we are also hoping that you'll very generously uh, give whatever you can to uh, our amazing four charities who are, we're here to support. We have the Louis Body Society, Race Against Dementia, Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society. Of course, there are many more that we could support uh, and we have lists of those on the website as well. If you go to chatathon.uk forward slash donate or go to the chatathon.uk website, <clears throat> you'll find a link there on how to donate. And please, please uh, do continue to give what you can. Um, our funding target this time around this year was probably a bit ambitious, but honestly, Everything you give will be equally divided amongst those charities and it'll make a difference. So um, before we just move on to this next session, I'm going to play a quick film from our, who we're going to go to this time. I think this time around we're going to go um, to one about the world, well, about football, um, because it's the World Cup. So we, we've got a video about the World Cup and Alzheimer's Society. <laughs> What time should we leave tomorrow? I think about eight. What do you reckon? Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> what time should we leave tomorrow? I told you, eight. What time should we leave tomorrow? We're leaving at eight, Jane. Should we leave tomorrow? Eight. I think we should leave at eight. 